Muriel's been a great friend of mine for 10, 12 years. Uh, he's currently in New York, so it's beautiful weather there, as it is in Cape Town, where I am. He's uh, isolated at home, I'm isolated at home, and uh, that's where we are. And I want to thank Muriel for coming on this, because it's incredibly difficult for someone as famous as him, and he is the most famous economist call, who called the crash in 2008, hence his nickname, Dr. Doom. And uh, he, it is incredibly difficult to A, be the doom guy, get it right, have people still love you and like you and get paid for it. So he's doing this for free and I'm immensely grateful to him. But I think if everyone can have a think about sponsors, we can get to sponsor webinars like this and of his, he, I would all be very grateful. So let's get straight in. Muriel, recession um, or depression, where are we? Uh, should we be very depressed? Yes. Hi. Hi, Harab. Hi, everyone. Such a great pleasure to be with you guys today. I want to thank you, Rob, for organizing it. Also, Invest Africa and the WhatsApp group, uh, SmartVest, as well. So let me give you a bit of a perspective on where we are in terms of the global economy, the outlook, the policy one, and the outlook for financial markets. Many of you are investors, and of course, you want to know if you are close to the bottom or whether things are going to get better or worse. Um, a couple of days ago, I wrote my monthly column for Project Syndicate, and the title of it was uh, A Greater Depression? Question mark. And I'd like to explain you why I started to talk about a greater depression as opposed to a greater recession. Now, a month ago, if you're listening to Bloomberg, CNBC, uh, market commentators were delusional. They were saying, well, we might have a correction, 10%. We might have a slowdown of growth. We might have maybe a dip of growth for one quarter, and then we're going to have a very rapid recovery, V-shaped uh, to what was before or even higher. Uh, this was nonsense, and I wrote about it extensively. But even today, uh, if you ask now what's the consensus or the conventional wisdom, if you ask Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, the IMF, Everybody at this point knows and has as a baseline a greater recession. What is a greater recession? Is a severe recession that's going to be worse, more front-loaded, and more severe than the global financial crisis of 2007, 2009. Okay, so we have moved from correction and V-shaped recovery to everybody agreeing that this is going to be nasty. Just to give you an example, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. And Morgan Stanley expect that in uh, the United States, growth in the second quarter, starting April 1st, is going to collapse at the annual rate between 25 and 30 percent. Okay, 25 to 30 percent. This is their their baseline, and they are not even among the most pessimists. So we are already in a greater recession, a greater and more severe than the global financial crisis of a decade ago. The question is not whether we'll be in a greater recession, that's baked in, that's priced in in the market. The question is whether things could get much worse, you can end up into a greater depression, greater than the uh, Great Depression of the 1930s. So the baseline that is the most optimistic is a greater recession. The question is whether we should be worrying and under which condition about something much worse, the beginning of a greater depression. Okay, let me try to flesh out now these two scenarios and explain which one of the factors is going to lead to one as opposed to the other one. 
First point I'll make is the following one. The shock to the global economy coming from the coronavirus has been both faster and more severe than both the global financial crisis of 2007 and 9, and even the Great Depression. Why? In those two previous episodes, it took about three years, three years for stock market to collapse by 50% or more, for credit markets to freeze, for high yield uh, spread to spike, for massive bankruptcies to follow, for unemployment rates to rise above 10%, and of course, GDP contracting at analyzed rate of 10, 15%. So it took three years between 1929 and 1932 for the Great Depression and between 2006 and 2009 in the Great Financial Crisis. In the current crisis, similar dire macroeconomic and financial outcomes have materialized in three weeks, three weeks, not even a month, not three years, not a year, in three weeks. Think of it this way. It took only 15 days for the US stock market to plummet into bear market territory. Historically, bear market take about three, four months. It took 15 days. It took literally a couple of weeks until credit spreads widened from 300 basis points above treasuries for high yield to above a thousand. It took about three weeks for the stock market not to go into bear market, but to fall by 35 to 40%. And credit markets have completely ceased, CLOs, leveraged loans, high yield, high grade, fallen angel, nobody can issue anything. And as I pointed out, even mainstream Wall Street knows that and predicts that this quarter output is already falling, GDP is already negative in Q1 in advanced economies, and it's gonna fall at the annual rate of 25 to 30% next quarter. The unemployment rate is already spiking. Today, the news out of the market was that the unemployment claims in the United States in the last week have gone to 3.3 million. Last week, there were 200,000. People expected 2 million, a 10x increase. Has not been a 10x increase, it's been a 15x. We have not seen anything like this for the last hundred of years. And even Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, warning that the unemployment rate could go from 3.5% to 20%, okay? This has happened in three weeks, not a year, not three years. Okay, that's the first observation. Every component of aggregate demand, consumption, capital spending, residential investment, exports, imports, is in a free fall. Few weeks ago, people were debating whether this is gonna be a V-shaped recovery or a U recession with a gradual recovery below trend like after the global financial crisis or whether it will be an L dropping and then stagnation or, a, or whether it will be a W, a double dip recession. You look at the number, it's not a V, it's not a U, it's not an L, it's not a W, it's an I, free fall. It's like a free fall stick. Everything is in free fall, every component of growth. We have not seen such a free fall since the Great Depression. And even the Great Depression and the global financial crisis were slow motion train wrecks. It took, as I said, three years for a financial shock to become an economic shock and then a depression. This time around, instead, has taken less than a month. We have not seen something like this ever before. So the greater recession is the baseline. And then the question is whether we're gonna end up into a greater depression. Now, the best case is gonna be one, as I pointed out, of a greater recession when growth is gonna be negative globally in the first quarter, in the second quarter, 
in the third quarter, and maybe there is light at the end of the tunnel by the fourth quarter of this year. Around September, October, economic growth started to become positive. That will be my baseline, and at this point, the baseline of most people also in financial markets. This will be a more severe recession than the global financial crisis, but will be shorter lived, only three quarters, as opposed to being five or six quarters, but it will be more severe because the falling output that I expect in the United States, for example, this year is going to be over the year minus 6%. In the Eurozone, minus 9%. Even during the global financial crisis, GDP growth that was negative in Eurozone and Europe was not negative to the tune of 6 to 9%. That's why this is going to be worse, even if shorter, if it lasts only three quarters. Now, what are the conditions under which we're going to get this best case scenario. And as I said, the best case scenario is worse than the global financial crisis. There are three conditions. Condition number one is that we need to do the right healthcare policy. And right healthcare policy means the following thing. We need to do massive testing, massive trace, the tracing, treatment measures, and enforced quarantines, and a full lockdown of the type that China has implemented between January and March. Voluntary lockdowns uh, don't work because people don't follow the rules. Quarantines that are not enforced do not work. You have literally to tell everybody, you stay at home, and if you get out of home and you don't have a good reason, like going to shop for food or a pharmacy, I'm going to lock you up. You're going to end up in jail. That's what was done in China, and that's what's being done right now in Italy. Too little, too late, but was done. And guess what? China did that. For three months, economic activity collapsed. My estimates are that GDP growth in the first quarter of this year in China was a negative minus 40% at the annual rate, minus 40%. But guess what? By now, the number of new cases is close to zero, and China can gradually go back to business. So if you do the right policy response, that means draconian Chinese-style lockdowns that are compulsory, then it's going to be enough to stop the, the contagion, the spread, to have new numbers going to zero in due time, and then you can restart economic activity. And in fact, it's going to take us at least 18 months to find a vaccine to be developed and produced. So that's not going to resolve the problem in the short term. And it's going to take ages until we find the right antivirals or therapeutics to be developed and produced in mass scale. So we're not going to have a medical solution to this problem. We have to shut down everything and everybody front-loaded so that we can start economic activity sooner rather than later. Second policy, you need massive monetary stimulus. And I have to give credit to the Fed, ECB, BOJ, BOE, and all the other major central banks that they literally, it took them less than a month to use the entire set of unconventional monetary policy that they used 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it took them two, three years to implement these new policies that did not even exist. Now it took them less than a month. Zero policy rate, more negative policy rate, forward guidance, unlimited quantitative easing, unlimited credit easing with purchase of private assets, backstop of short-term liquidity market and funding markets, massive issues, of uh, T-bills and repo as much as it takes. Liquidity support to banks, to non-bank financial institutions, to primary dealers, to broker dealers, to money bonds, to money market funds, to commercial paper, 
even purchases of corporate bonds that are investment grade, and so on and so on. What took three years has been done in a month. So kudos to central bank because they're doing what's necessary to provide liquidity, money, and credit so the financial system doesn't completely freeze and goes into a meltdown. That's happening. Third type of sets of policies. The government has to deploy massive fiscal stimulus through helicopter drops of money, meaning the deficit have to be fully monetized. Because if you issue huge amount of debt and you run a 10% of GDP budget deficit or even bigger, like in the US, and you issue all those bonds, long-term interest rates are gonna go higher when it's bonds finance fiscal deficit and interest rates going higher are gonna crowd out the recovery. So you have to do helicopter drop of money large fiscal deficit, massive amount of support to the private sector, household, small businesses, larger corporation, financial institution, and every single piece of government bond, notes, or bills issued by the Treasury has to be bought by the central bank. And in the US, the Fed has said unlimited purchases of bonds. So they're going to buy all of it. Now, helicopter drop of money used to be a dirty word was the idea of a bunch of leftist academics. You remember modern monetary theory, people's QE, helicopter drop. But guess what? Has become completely mainstream. In the last year, Ben Bernanke, Stan Fisher, and his colleagues at BlackRock, Ray Dalio, Azai Turner, and so on and so on have said, we can have and we should have temporary monetization of fiscal deficit when there is a, a severe economic downturn. And exactly that is happening right now. Now, what's the difference between running budget deficit and doing QE or doing helicopter drop? There is no substantial difference. In the former case, you buy the bonds of the government in the secondary market. In the latter case of QE, of uh, people's QE, or helicopter drop, you buy it in the primary market. But the impact on long-term interest rates is the same. Are we getting to full helicopter drop of money? We're getting close to it, but not everywhere. US is doing it, Europe is not yet there, other countries are not there. Now, take these three conditions. I would say that the second one, monetary policy, check. The third one, the right fiscal policy, we're maybe half of the way there. How about the first one? Unfortunately, the public health response in advanced economies has been severely short of what's needed to contain the pandemic. That's the problem we're facing right now. And if we're going to let the genie out of the bottle and we're going to have only mitigation or mitigation light, like the United States, as opposed to draconian suppression, this, this thing is going to get out of hand and we're going to end up with millions of cases. I'll give you an example. In the United States, the rate of spread of the contagion is about 30% per day. Means that the numbers double every three days. Today, we have about 50,000 cases in the United States. At 30% per day, the number is going to be half a million, half a million in a month, okay? And it's going to be two million in two months, okay? That's what happens when you do mitigation or mitigation light. In the US, Trump says, I'm not even happy with mitigation light. I want to reduce those uh, forced uh, forms of social distancing and I want to start to going back to business. I think the idea is crazy. It's better to front load suppression and stop the virus for two, three months so that you have no economic activity and then you jumpstart economic growth down the line. 
if instead you do mitigation light and the thing spreads and you're restarting economic activity, you'll have stop, go, and a bigger stop that's going to shut down the economy, not for three months, but possibly for six or nine months. So, and unfortunately, what's happening in the United States, we're going towards mitigation or mitigation light. So, what's happening that can lead us to a greater depression? Three reasons why we may end up in a greater depression. Reason number one is that in too many parts of the world, starting with the United States, we're doing mitigation or mitigation light. And that's going to lead to a nightmare from a medical point of view. We should go in full suppression mode, Chinese style, but we're not doing it. Secondly, even if we were going into more aggressive mitigation, let alone into suppression, any epidemiological model says the virus is going to mutate and by next uh, winter, fourth quarter, when economic activity is supposed to become positive, there is going to be another round of the virus. There's going to be another one because there'll be mutation. And by then, not everybody is immune. And by then, we don't have a vaccine. And by then, we don't have all the antivirals or other therapeutics going to stop the contagion. So even if we're doing full suppression, there'll be another spike of the contagion next winter, winter in the Northern Hemisphere. And by the way, and by the way, right now, the contagion is moving from Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere, because in a matter of four or five weeks, you guys in South Africa are going into fall and then winter. So you're gonna have actually the spread of the virus from Northern Hemisphere to Southern Hemisphere, and then back to the Northern Hemisphere next winter, around October, November on our side. Yes, Muriel, Rob. a quick question from Faisal Barnett, Jersey Finance. What if there's a cure or vaccine found in the short term? Doesn't the situation reverse? Demand and production have been forced out of the system and there are no structural issues yet. Listen, I've been speaking and reading what every scientific expert is saying. Every scientific expert says that you'll be lucky to have a vaccine 12 months from now and most likely is going to be 18 months from now. That's the best case scenario. So 12 months from now means March or April of next year, where then you're already in the Northern Hemisphere in another winter with another contagion. What people hope is not a vaccine, but they hope that the antivirals and other therapeutics can be developed and can function uh, soon. The trouble is that there was this rhetoric that, for example, President Trump peddled snake oil salesman that the chloroquine was going to be resolving the problem and contain the contagion. Uh, there are studies now done in India that suggest by doing a true trial that there is no difference between those patients who get this chloroquine and those who don't. And even Dr. Fauci, the scientist with the expert of the White House, says this is, there is no scientific evidence is working. So we're not going to get the vaccine for another 18 months, guaranteed. And we don't know whether there is any antiviral or other other therapeutics that's going to work and it's going to work truly as opposed to being snake oil so let's be realistic about it so the most likely scenario is it spreads now from northern hemisphere to southern hemisphere and by the fourth quarter is back in very mutated form to the northern hemisphere we don't have a vaccine and we have only limited antivirals and other therapeutics that work that's the baseline unfortunately I wish I could tell you something more cheerful about it, but the scientists tell us that's the situation. And of course, those who peddle herd immunity 
what are they saying? Let's everybody have it. So you're immune and you're going to have pretty much everybody who's an old person die. I mean, this is like uh, Nazi style eugenics, right? Senicide, killing all the old because they're not productive member of society. That is also a totally sick and disgusting idea. Even Boris Johnson, who started talking about herd immunity, once the Imperial College the next day came with a study showing that herd immunity is going to imply millions of dead people and the return of the pandemic next winter, then he changed and in a matter of two days decided to have a full compulsory lockdown. So unfortunately, there is not a bullet miracle out there. So that's one problem. Even if we do suppression, let alone mitigation, next winter we're going to have another cycle with another pandemic, with a mutation of the same virus until we find the vaccine. And that's a year and a half away. Second problem that is key. You can run a 10% of GDP budget deficit for a year and fully monetize it, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. In a world in which there are negative supply shocks, because I'll explain this is a negative supply shock that reduces output and increases cost, when you run large monetary policy uh, to monetize fiscal deficit, you end up not with depression and deflation, but you end up with stagflation, depression and inflation. And look at what happened in the 1970s when we had two major oil shocks, 73 Yom Kippur, 79 Iranian Revolution that led to reduction in output and increasing cost. We monetized fiscal deficits because we decided to fight the oil shock by easing monetary and fiscal policy and we ended up in double digit inflation. Of course, countries would do it forever end up like Zimbabwe, Venezuela, or Argentina, not just high inflation, but rather hyperinflation. I'm not expecting hyperinflation in US and Europe, but inflation can go higher. And why do I say this is gonna be a massive, persistent and permanent supply shock? You have disruption of global supply chains. Soon enough, we're not gonna even be able to produce food in enough quantities. Today, there are not enough workers to pick up the fruits and the vegetables in California. And there's be, there'll be a disruption even of the food supply chain, not just in US, but around the world. And in Africa, guess what? You have something like a plague, a plague of locusts in parts of Africa. They are destroying, biblical plague. These kind of things are happening and gonna happen around the world. Additionally, we're gonna have deglobalization. It already started with the Cold War between US and China. Deglobalization, balkanization of global supply chains, fragmentation, decoupling, reshoring, leaving China and emerging market going back home. What's the implication? You disrupt global supply chain, you reduce potential growth, you increase cost of production, that's a negative supply shock. We have inward-oriented policies, trade protectionism, tariff, protecting your own workers, your own firms, restricting movement of labor, of capital, of migration, of goods and services. That's a negative supply shock. So that's the world we're going to after this coronavirus is even over. Deglobalization, that means a negative permanent supply shock. You monetize fiscal deficits in the situation of negative supply shock. Today, you are getting deflation and recession. Why? Supply is falling, but demand is falling faster. But a year from now or two years from now, with these sets of policy, you don't get recession, 
and inflation, sorry, recession and deflation, you get depression and you get inflation. So you get stagflation, recession that becomes a depression and high inflation, the nightmare that we experienced already in the 1970s. So you cannot run this deficit forever. And by the way, in countries like the US and Europe, where you can print money of your national currency, you can monetize fiscal deficits. What about emerging markets that can issue mostly debt in a foreign currency? What about emerging markets where corporates, banks, and other parts of the economy are partially dollarized? Their currency are plunging, the real value of their debt is now rising in local currency terms, and they cannot print dollar. They can print rand or they can print peso. So who's gonna bail out emerging markets? There is massive liquidity squeeze in foreign dollar funding markets. The IMF can help, the World Bank can help, but the maximum they can do given their capital is a trillion dollar. That's spare change given the amount of dollar debt that is around the world and the financial strain that most emerging markets are gonna face. Yes, the Fed is also providing dollar liquidity through swap lines to European and Asian central banks. It might even provide them to some key emerging markets, but the amount of dollar demand is gonna be there in the markets is in the trillions of dollars. And what the swap lines of the Fed give you and what the IMF and the World Bank can do is only a fraction of what is needed. So you could have financial distress and meltdown and defaults and debt crisis, not just in advanced economies, but also in emerging markets. Final national- point I'll make before I stop. There are all sets of geopolitical risk that are leading right now to a geopolitical depression in addition to the economic depression. And these geopolitical shock are gonna imply that things can get much worse, okay? We don't have not only a populist backlash against trade, migration, globalization, and even technology, and this crisis is gonna make it worse by shutting down borders to the movements of labor, capital, goods, services, technology, and you name it. But today, there is a geopolitical rivalry between the United States and four revisionist powers that are challenging the US economic and political and geopolitical order. These are Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Now, these countries cannot attack the United States in a conventional way, because the US is, of course, militarily stronger than them. So how do you try to attack the United States that is trying to undermine you because the US wants to contain this revisionist power or it wants regime change like in the case of Iran for this uh, for this revisionist power. So US is using also a variety of tools, trade sanctions, financial sanctions to undermine these countries. So what this country can do, they can do only asymmetric cyber warfare. You disrupt the US financial system. You disrupt their own infrastructure by using cyber warfare. You interfere with the US election, creating chaos and confusion, deep fakes, fake news, and trying to undermine even the primaries, let alone the general election. And if the general election is going to lead to a narrow result, either side is going to lose, whether Trump or Biden is going to scream rigged, rigged, the other side rigged it. And trust me, Al Gore in 2000 went to the Supreme Court and when the Supreme Court said Bush won with the charge in Florida, he accepted. If Trump goes to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, Biden won, he's not going to accept it. You're going to have white supremacists and militias with guns and K-47 in the streets. The real risk of literally violent civil war in the United States. 
and I'm not the one saying it. People who are experts of geosecurity in the White House and otherwise worry about that scenario. People like Ian Bremmer, head of the geopolitical firm Eurasia, is worried about the number one geopolitical risk this year is the United States. So you'll have the first global cyber warfare in human history, interference in the US election and political chaos and violence. You can have the Cold War between US and China getting much worse. Used to be trade, technology, finance, currency, monetary affair. Now it's becoming worse because the US is claiming this is the Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus, and the Chinese are believing that there is a conspiracy to destroy China. They asked themselves in Beijing today, how come in six months we're having first a swine flu that kills half of our pigs and doubles pork prices. Then we have a bird flu that destroys all our chicken. Now we have a coronavirus. And then we have massive protests in our major financial center, Hong Kong, against us, and a pro-independence candidate winning in Taiwan. And we're having the US Navy becoming more aggressive in the Strait of Formosa and East and South China Sea. Is this a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence because people like Steve Bannon or Peter Navarro, trade advisor of, of uh, Trump, want what? They want a war with China. They want to destroy the Chinese Communist Party. They want regime change in China. And even people like Mike Pence or Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, are in favor of a Cold War. Look what Mike Pompeo said just overnight. The Communist Party in China is an evil force and is the cause of what has happened with the coronavirus. These are kind of Cold War, kind of Dr. Strangelove types of statements. So the Cold War between US and China is gonna escalate this year. It's gonna get nasty and it's gonna have economic and political and financial consequences. And final point, I believe that Iran is gonna strike a war against the United States because the regime knows that if Trump is elected, Four more years of Trump in power means the, the Iranian regime is dead. And they need regime change in the United States. So if you can block the Strait of Hormuz, if you can attack production capacity of uh, Saudi and Emirates, if you can have proxy wars done by your allies in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Gaza, against Israel and other things, if you can create chaos, oil prices that today are $20 per barrel, they can spike at $150 per barrel. And like in 73, 79 and 1990, you're gonna have a spike in oil prices, a stock market crash, a more severe recession, and then you're gonna get regime change in the United States, not in Iran. Think what happened. After the oil shock of 73, Ford lost to Carter. After the 1980 shock to oil prices, with the Iranian revolution, uh, Carter lost to Reagan. And in 1992, after the all shock of the Iraqi uh, Kuwaiti war, uh, uh, Bush lost to Clinton. So you've had three episodes of geopolitical shocks in the Middle East with oil prices where you had regime change, not in Iran, but in the United States. So expect war between US and Iran this year. So to conclude, you have a trifecta of risk, a pandemic that's gonna become uncontained in a baseline scenario. Two, an insufficient economic policy arsenals, and you're gonna run out of bullets and cause stagflation if you run monetized fiscal deficit this year and next year, and you have massive geopolitical depression ahead of us. 
this trifecta of risk, call it the Bermuda Triangle, can lead us not to a greater recession, it can lead us to a greater depression. It's not a happy ending, but I would say at this point, the greater recession will be great news if that was the best we get or the worst we get, because the alternative is much worse. Maybe I'll start Muriel. here. Yeah, Muriel, I mean, I think people are actually, the heads are spinning. I mean, that is unbelievable. 34 minutes, incredible. Two quick things, two questions have come out. Nationalization, is that inevitable? Certainly in South Africa and places like emerging markets, but what about the US? Question number one. Well, you know, uh, in some emerging markets, maybe firms that are going to receive the support of the government are going to be effectively sooner or later nationalized because the bailout might imply that they're not going to be bailed out, they eventually go bankrupt and then the government's going to take them over. In the United States, we want to avoid that, but even in the United States, we said this time around, the bailout is going to come with strings attached, no share buybacks, no money paid for high compensation of CEO. And even the US has said, we may take equity positions in the firms that we're going to be uh, helping. Now, if you take equity positions, they can be temporary or they can be more permanent. During the global financial crisis, as you remember, the TARP bailout, $700 billion of the bank, implied that literally every single bank in the United States got some equity from the US government. And for a number of years, a firm as large as Citibank was literally de facto nationalized, was not de jure nationalized, but Citibank, AIG, and many others were de facto nationalized. Now, when the economy recovered, the US sold its equity positions in these firms and they become private again. So we avoided a massive nationalization. We may not be lucky this time around if the greater recession becomes a greater depression. And certainly in countries where there is resource nationalism and where governments are more populist, the idea you're gonna take over the firms in the private sector that you bail out is going to become politically appealing because during the global financial crisis the rhetoric is we bailed out wall street but we didn't bail out main street we bailed out the corporation and the fat bankers and traders and we screwed the workers and the small businesses and now there is a populist backlash against that so we cannot do the same kind of a bailout of privatizing the gains socializing the losses therefore forms of nationalization or greater intervention of government in the economy or interference, more command and control, either Chinese state capitalism may become the norm in some part of the world. Nuriel, we've got 20 minutes max with you. And uh, there's a question from David Ulrich of Moody's. You know, in the emerging markets, there, there will be civil unrest. We're expecting it in South Africa. You know, the troops are already out, mid lockdowns at midnight tonight. But could there be such a thing on the streets of the United States and the United Kingdom, riots, some civil strife? Yes, it can be. I'll give you the following statistics. In the United States, 40% of households in the US have less than $400 of liquid assets to deal with an emergency. Okay? So almost half of Americans have less than $400. So given this shock in the first and second quarter, I talked to people in New York that are in hotels, in bars, in restaurants, in entertainment, and so on. Their income has literally gone overnight to zero, zero. Now, if you're fully employed, you are lucky because if you're fully employed in a big corporation, then you get your salary, even if the corporation is in trouble. 
even if the corporation is going to fire you, you have healthcare, you have now extended unemployment benefits, it's going to last for six months to a year, and you're getting other types of welfare benefits, including also uh, paid leave if your family is sick. But half of the economy is not formally employed. You have contractors, you have self-employed people, small businesses, gig workers, partially employed, contractors, freelancers, hourly workers, retirees that work part-time, students work part-time. These people are not formally employed. They're only informally employed. They don't have a formal employment contract. Their income has gone to zero, zero, and they don't have unemployment insurance. Yes, the government is going to send them now a check, $1,000 per person, but that helps you for a month. Of course, all these people are not going to pay rent. They're going to default on their rent. They're going to default on their mortgages if they have a mortgage. They're not going to pay their utility bill, electricity, water, gas. They're not going to pay their phone bill or internet bill. They're going to default on all that, guaranteed. Half of the country cannot do it, even with the check from the government. But with $1,000 and $400 of savings, these people are not going to have enough in two months money to buy food. And if you don't have money to buy food, what you're going to do? You're going to riot in the streets and you're going to run and little there'll be mobs going to the supermarket and store and taking over everything. So even in the United States, this is the most advanced economy in the world, you have half of the population that's going to default on all their debts and all their rents and all their bills. And in spite of that, they're not going to have enough money for food. Because at this point, the question is, do you have enough money for food? And they're going to riot unless we give them not a thousand dollar half of it in april and half of it in may but another thousand dollar in june in july in august in september until the economy recovers so even in advanced economies like the us you're gonna have this now in europe you have a slightly more extended social welfare system it's bigger than the united states but those who are informal workers were partially attached and then they have formal uh, contracts have the same problem in the United States of informal workers. You have to find ways to help them because they're going to run out of food. That's the risk we're facing. And you could have violence even in Europe. Next question is a two-part question. It's uh, Mark, 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 Mark uh, Simmons wants to find out, he wants to unpack that oil issue a little bit more. If there isn't a war in Iran and the US, if the states of hormones are not closed, what happens to the oil price? And the second part of the question is to do safe haven where are they if any and what about gold well first one on oil if there is not a war in the middle east and i fear there's going to be one the fundamentals of oil is that right now there is a recession may come a depression so demand is collapsing economic activity is shut down so demand for oil and other energy is sharply down and you have a glut of capacity because now saudi and, and Russia have started a war. They decided not to control supply and therefore dumping massive amount of capacity in the market. So you have massive increase in supply. You have a collapse in demand. And guess what? All prices are in the 20s. They can go lower. If the greater recession becomes a greater depression, oil prices is going to be in the teens rather than the 20s. If this glut of capacity is going to increase, it's going to get worse. And of course, a lot of the shale gas and oil producers in the US, eventually, they're going to go bankrupt because they know their break even is at 40 or $50, not at 20. 
even at 20, they have to keep on producing because if you build the rig, the marginal cost of getting the oil and the gas out of the ground is very low. So you're not going to stop production. So the glut of production is going to remain, but all these shale gas producers are going to be financially bankrupt. And at some point, they're going to default. And therefore, the supply is going to be reduced. But it's going to happen maybe six months to 12 months from now. So they're all going to go bust, but the supply is not going to shrink until they go bust. And even once they go bust, if the price were to rise again, somebody's going to pick up the assets and therefore produce the stuff down the line. So unless you reform or form again OPEC plus, it doesn't look likely for the time being, uh, you'll be lucky if oil is in the 20s rather than going into the teens. Uh, on safe, safe assets, government bonds in countries that are safe. One, uh, cash or cash-like instruments. Uh, that's where you want to be. Gold most likely is going higher because it's a hedge against one uh, economic meltdown, financial meltdown, and possibly eventually return to inflation after a year of deflation. But there is one caveat. The rise of, of gold during this crisis has not been linear. There have been days where the market crashes down 5-10%, stock markets and gold goes down rather than going up. Why? Because if you have a margin call and you need to have a fire sale, you're going to sell your winners and gold is your winner. So if you need cash to take care of your financial distress or margin calls and things of that sort, you're selling those that are going up. And that's why in days of extreme market distress, gold was going down rather than going up. However, I would say, given a greater recession that can become a greater depression, uh, you could expect that gold prices by year end may be as high as 2,000 per ounce or as low as 1,800. So it's still a, probably at the margin, a positive bet. The industries that are going to thrive in this in this economy, sorry, in this down depre potential depression, which ones uh, shine out for you? Well, of course, there are some industries that do most of their businesses online. So, you know, today, you know, Amazon is doing very well. So if you can produce and deliver uh, using these and people cannot go to a shop, they're doing well. Uh, if you're Facebook or Google, you can do well because there is a much more activity at home or than Netflix with one caveat. Most of the revenues of Google and Facebook are essentially ad revenues. There is not a subscription model like Netflix. And this economic severity crisis is going to continue to become a depression. With less economic activity, there's going to be much less ad spending. And therefore, even the revenues of tech giants like Amazon, sorry, like uh, Google or Facebook could go down. So you need uh, in the tech sector, those businesses, they don't have an advertising model, but they have either a service model like Amazon or a subscription model, like in the case of Netflix and other services. So it's not tech across the board, but you have to be sophisticated to figure out even within tech and things can be done online services which one of them are going to do better than others? With five minutes to go, I want to ask a question. South Korea, no one's really talked about it. Of the Western countries, they've actually responded absolutely correctly, and they are a winner in the story. In, in addition, they've got some extraordinary companies in there, in robotics, in AI, 
in life sciences, in med tech. Comment on South Korea. Well, South Korea did the right uh, policy response on the health side, and it's not just South Korea. You have to give credit that Asians have more, uh, I would say, social capital than the UK, US, and Europe. When government tell to people, stay at home, they stay at home. And it happened in Korea, it happened in Taiwan, it happened in Hong Kong, it happened in Singapore. And that's why, in spite of the virus starting in China, the spread to these countries in Asia has been reduced. Initially, there was a massive spike in Korea because there was this fanatic cult, religious cult that didn't want to get tested. And then the government decided them will force you to get tested. Uh, no excuses. So you have to kudos to the Asians that have done the right medical response. Now, Korea is a country that on one side, as you pointed out, in some of the high-tech sectors of the future, industries of the future, starting with robotics, automation, and others, has lots of interesting companies. It's also, however, a country that is essentially highly integrated with China and depends on world trade. And if we're going to live in a world in which China is going to grow, like this year, at best closer to zero rather than 6%, and even after this crisis is over, the potential growth of China is going to fall from five towards four, and we'll be in a world in which export-led growth is not going to be as easy as before because there'll be barriers to trade in goods, in service, in capital, in labor. In a world that is deglobalized, an economy like North, uh, South Korea is more open to trade than even China. So can they change their business model to become less so? No, because it's a small open economy. Now, they have an advantage that in some, some industries of the future, they're ahead of the curve but they're only partially ahead of the curve. Korea is also a major producer and exporter of cars. And we live in a world in which there'll be a collapse in demand for cars. And one of the things gonna happen, maybe silver lining from this crisis is we'll do more telecommuting, more teleconferencing. We're not gonna drive every day to work for an hour. Maybe we'll be able to work from home. If all of that happens means the demand for cars is gonna be falling already over time because of uh, electric cars and then autonomous vehicles, then if everybody's gonna work from home, it's gonna be even lower. And therefore, what's the business model for a Korea where you have Kia and you have Hyundai and you have all the other automakers? So in some sectors, Korea is in the right sectors of the future. In other ones, is in some of the dinosaurs of the future, like steel or shipbuilding or autos that might be disturbed in a world that is deglobalized. Nuriel, we've got a chance for one more question. You've been incredibly generous and I wanna thank you very much for your time. And before we ask the question, and it's a classic one from Ken Clark of Twizzer and a Smutby, I'm gonna ask that question. I wanna thank you very, very much. And everybody listening, we, you know, Nuriel's done this for free. Next time, if we want him back in the next week or month, can you all please, find me sponsors and we can sponsor and pay him for something extraordinary like this. So as you leave Nuriel, the question from Ken Clark at Twitter, when is the stock market going to bottom? Um, well, I'll answer in brief this question, but if we're gonna do another session, maybe since we talked about the economics and about the policy, uh, I could more talk much more in detail about what's gonna happen to a variety of financial market, US and global equities. Uh, you know, government bond yields, uh, credit spreads, oil and other commodities. Of course, what's going to happen 
in emerging markets as opposed to advanced economies. So I think we can expand more on that stuff, including, of course, um, oil, gold, precious metals, and even cryptocurrencies. But let me give you an answer about the, 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 the stock market uh, in summary. I would say I spoke about uh, two scenarios, but there is a third scenario. So the baseline is a greater recession, and by the fourth quarter, you have an anemic recovery. The downside scenario is a great depression or a greater depression, but there is a scenario that I think is very unlikely, but it's the one that is still peddled by Wall Street. And it's the following scenario. You get a severe recession in Q1 and Q2, and by Q3, you have a very strong V-shaped recovery, and it continues into Q4 and into next year. Okay? So you have a baseline of a greater recession, you have a downside scenario of a greater depression, and you have an upside scenario of a V-shaped recovery. Now, in my baseline, I expect that the markets went down 35% in the US. Now they're down 30% given the rally of the last couple of days. But think of it this way. All the good news on the policy are already now out of the way and pricing. Fiscal bazooka, $2 trillion. Monetary bazooka by the Fed. All that stuff is already priced in in the market. So the policy news on the macro side are not going to improve much more in the next few weeks. Well, in the next few weeks, what's going to happen? It's going to happen that the economic news are going to be worse than expected. Say today, unemployment claims 3.3 million. And on that news, the market started to go down. So you're going to have a bunch of worse than expected macroeconomic news. The economy is getting worse than expected. And the health news in a situation where you have mitigation lights are going to become a nightmare. In a month, you'll have half a million cases in the US rather than 50,000. And you'll have thousands of people dying every day. And it's going to be a nightmare. So in the balance of the good versus bad news, I fear that even in a baseline, the good news are already out. We may get another fiscal package, but unlikely for the time being, we just invested into two trillion let's wait two months until it works or doesn't work if it doesn't work we'll have more but it's not the baseline and you'll have all this bad macroeconomic and health news so the balance is towards going from minus 30 today towards minus 40 and only when only when we're going to do radical suppression and markets know that there is going to be an end to the contagion Markets like to price risk, risk where you have distribution on which you can price probability. Markets cannot price uncertainty. If you have no idea whether this is going to be three months or six months, then the market can go only south. So once we have enough testing, enough suppression, we know that by June or July, this is over, then the market can truly bottom out. And if there is light at the end of the tunnel on the economic side, recover. So in this baseline, I think that we go down another 10%. Even if you can have up days, you bottom at minus 40. And then by the end of the year, with the monetary and fiscal stimulus, you're still at minus 20 in the US, worse in Europe and other parts of the world. That's the baseline. You're going to be still 20% down, but you're going to go lower before you're going to go higher. If you're really optimistic and you believe that uh, it's going to be only a two quarter recession and we're going to be having a V shaped recovery. By the end of the year, I would say the S&P 500 in U.S. will be maybe uh, around the levels, maybe 10% lower than it was at the beginning of the year. 
So why? Because you have a rapid recovery and you have a wall of liquidity and zero rates and QE. And therefore the market is gonna bottom out closer to current level, maybe goes down a little bit and then recovers and you'll be minus 10 for the year, okay? Some people are optimistic and say, you're not gonna have any losses for the year, but I would say minus 10. Of course, if you end up into the greater depression scenario, you go to minus 50, minus 60, and you stay there for another year and a half until maybe in the second half of 2021, you have the beginning of light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you have a vaccine. Maybe at that point, we have millions of people dead and most people are essentially having herd immunity. But in the greater depression, you're down 60% and you stay there for a while. So on US stocks, in the baseline for the year, you're minus 20, 25, but you're gonna go lower before you're gonna go higher. In the most optimistic scenario, still minus 10 for the year. In the downside scenario, it's a nightmare. But at that point, you have to worry about being dead rather than whether you're losing 60%. You might be dead before that happens. So, so that would be the baseline, the, the scenarios for US equities. Nuriel, I cannot thank you enough. I know you've got to go now. Um, I think everybody in this call now needs a drink desperately. Um, yeah. I also yeah. think but we will be... If you folks want, uh, I can do another call where we discuss much more in detail market implication because, of course, getting the movements of the market is important and getting it right and the timing of it is going to be also important. There'll be lots of uh, disasters, but there's also lots of opportunities. So if you find a sponsor, I'll be happy to do another call anytime and discuss more the market implication of various scenarios. Muriel, I'm sure we're going to be doing it. I'm sure there'll be more than one sponsor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Speak soon. Good talking. A pleasure. Thanks for attending.